0: Hey everyone, this is our season finale, and we'll be going on a hiatus for the summer to figure out what is next for our show and to take a break after a very intense season. We're meeting with networks now in the hopes of finding a new home so we can keep doing what we do. Please stay with us in the meantime stay subscribed to our show and if you want to keep up with us you can become a patron or you can follow us on social media there are links in our bio for both it also always helps so much if you leave us a review on apple we thank you so deeply for the ways you support us and we will be keeping in touch through this feed as much as we can look out especially for our merch coming soon and please stick with us, we couldn't be luckier to have an audience like you. Please be aware that this episode contains descriptions of racial violence. On this season, we'll explore our most ingrained beliefs, delusions, and archetypes, the ways that cognitive dissonance shapes our culture, and how our reality is created by the stories we tell. I'm your host, Chelsea Weber-Smith, and this is American Hysteria.
1: At Forest Lawn, we understand how important it is to be right the first time, because when it comes to funerals, it'll be the only time.
0: Dr. Jesse Carmaan is talking about transfusions with the young blood from teenagers.
1: An embalmer and a funeral director were on the train full time, constantly attempting to refresh the unrefrigerated corpse. Sometimes it was myself in the, in the coffin. it was my brother's in the coffin. It was I can't describe it.
0: Really, how do I open an episode called Death? I've struggled with this for a few weeks, and I can't seem to find the clean, personal story that could lead us into this final topic the way I've tried to throughout this season. And maybe that's the best place to start. I don't know. As much as these episodes have been about understanding our shared history, our shared psychology, and our shared modern culture, I also set out to try to get to know myself in these contexts as much as I could. But at the end of the day, of course, my own life and life in general remains a great and ever-expanding mystery. Death is a universal fact. Perhaps all that we can each be certain of. Grief, too, is universal. We will all lose people that will shatter us and will never be the same. There are many kinds of death and many kinds of grief, and many different things can come from it. When I lost my beloved grandpa two years ago, I was there when he died. My whole family was. It was a lucky kind of death getting to say goodbye like that, but nonetheless, it shattered me. I'd never seen anything like that, been so close to that human truth. I thought it would make more sense. I thought, naively, it could be more like a poem than a fact. He was my favorite person, and then he was gone, carried out by a young undertaker, turned into ash, How do any of us make sense of that? For our season finale, we are looking into the very heart of all our hysteria, all our fantastical thinking, all our archetypes, beliefs, delusions, our panic, the heart of all our stories, the ultimate cognitive dissonance. And we were a little shocked with what we found. Just how much this uniquely human knowledge of the inevitable future shapes not only who we are, but our politics, our prejudices, our entire culture at large. We'll be taking a look at the historical progression of how Americans have dealt with death and the bodies it leaves behind. We'll start with a strange modern example in Los Angeles and then go all the way back to the Puritans to explore their idea of the good death. Then we'll move into the massive death toll of the Civil War and the embalming methods that followed, including the long corpse tour of Abraham Lincoln. In addition, we'll look at the history of the elite obsession with living forever, with immortality. But we'll also explore how prior to the civil rights movement and into this day, the deaths of white people and the deaths of black people have been treated completely differently in mainstream American culture. In the middle of massive protests over the killings of George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and other unarmed Black people, America is again reckoning with death and what death has meant to the history of our nation. Today, we'll ask the complicated questions. How have we dealt with death since the very beginning of colonization? And what does this universal fear of death mean? make us do
1: what is this place it's forest lawn hollywood hills where you will find both undertaking and cemetery together at affordable prices and that may be the real beauty of forest lawn
0: there is a sprawling cemetery outside of Los Angeles that has long been called the Disneyland of Death, or as the LA Times referred to it, a theme park necropolis. The Forest Lawn Memorial Park is an enormous, saccharine-sweet playground of mortality, or rather, immortality. An illustrious resting place for some of the most famous people in American pop cultural history and anyone else who can afford it. In 1917, a dreamer with a streak of capitalistic Christian mysticism named Hubert Eaton gained control of a small, rundown cemetery in Glendale, California, and decided that dying itself needed a cute new makeover. He rechristened it a memorial park, believing that cemeteries were, quote,
1: unsightly depressing stone yards
0: and sought to make a new kind of mourning place or rather a place
1: as unlike other cemeteries as sunshine is unlike darkness.
0: Hubert Eaton was not fond of tombstones, the way they would crack and slouch grayly over the words fading away over time. In the new forest lawn, tombstones would be replaced by flat markers, far more impervious to the elements, and a little classier, too. The grounds would become adorned with dramatic replicas of famous artworks, including a full-sized statue of Michelangelo's David and an enormous stained-glass rendering of The Last Supper. He called these accents his silent salesman and soon he would open a museum curating some of the most famous art in existence. He also added other attractions such as the Pool of Reflection as well as building several wedding chapels that were exact replicas of European churches and boasting big ceremonies there including that of American hysteria favorite Ronald Reagan. Elizabeth Taylor, Sammy Davis Jr., Michael Jackson, Clark Gable, Nat King Cole, the patron saint of my entire heart, Brittany Murphy, Carrie Fisher, and the man himself, Walt Disney, are all buried at Forest Lawn. To keep the grounds... Perfect, mourners are not allowed to leave balloons, ornamentation, statues, or stones, and potted flowers must not exceed eight inches in diameter with cut flowers removed within three days. To give you a more visceral picture of this strange, deathless cemetery, the very first statue installed in Forest Lawn was that of a naked toddler surrounded by ducklings titled, fittingly, Duck Baby. The vast 300 acres were divided in an eerily similar way to Disneyland. There's babyland made for infants and shaped like a big heart, slumberland for children and teenagers, the garden of the mystery of life, sweet memories, inspiration slope, graceland, garden of honor, kindly light, gardens of contemplation, and the dawn of tomorrow. Eden also wanted to soften the language around death to make it more pleasant. He created popular euphemisms that we still use today, calling a corpse the loved one and death itself leave-taking or passing on. Even now, hearses are called casket coaches, graves are called internment spaces, and dirt is referred to as earth. Some accounts say you can even choose music to be eternally pumped into the crypts, even when no visitors are present. But Forest Lawn was more than an easier place to come to terms with mortality and to say goodbye. It was also a very profitable business model. Depending on the area, burial costs are currently going anywhere from 8000 to 800000 Loudspeakers across the lawns break the calm music to remind visitors of the various on-site florists and gift shops. When he was still around, Eaton required the staff to call him the Builder and reminded them every morning after a session of prayer that they were selling immortality. The Builder's Creed is carved into a large stone tablet near the entrance. It begins,
1: I believe in a happy eternal life.
0: Flanked by alabaster sculptures of children holding hands and, of course, a puppy curled beside them. He paid an Italian artist to sculpt a Jesus statue with the explicit request that it have an American face and be
1: filled with radiance and looking upward with an inner light of joy.
0: But of course, for much of the beginning of its history, this cemetery did not allow any people of color to be buried in an all-white, suburban-esque, pastoral fantasy. Beginning in the 1600s, most Puritan graves were adorned with a winged skull. And yes, I know, this is extremely badass. They were otherwise simple, austere, a rejection of the English Catholic pomp and circumstance. And they were common, too, because the colonists were no strangers to intimate death. It was a basic and highly visible fact of their lives. The death rate was incredibly high during their first century, and even by the time the settlements were more established, one in ten children would die in their first year of life, and up to 40% would not reach adulthood. Most would die in their homes with their families, their bodies then washed and shrouded for a wake, kept from decomposition with vinegar-soaked cloths and tubs of ice. Facing death was twofold for the Puritans, something to be excited for at the potential of heaven and the confirmation of their goodness, what was known as the assurance of salvation. But since these are the Puritans we're talking about, after that sweet moment of assurance, it was straight into something called necessary doubt, lest one be lulled by vanity, what they called false peace. Throughout the following period, known as the Era of Enlightenment, science slowly began to take its place alongside the religious superstitions of the past, and bodies took on a new significance— Doctors wanted to understand how the body worked in order to figure out how Americans could live longer, how the dead could help the living, but this was not always a noble pursuit in the eyes of those outside the medical field. With the advent of public hospitals, medical students sought out the deceased to be used as experimental cadavers. Medical students became well-known for their nightly tradition of grave robbing, which almost always meant exhuming the bodies of the enslaved, which they did without much public notice or care. But when this indignity extended to one white woman in New York City in 1788, the locals went absolutely nuts. It begins like this, or so the story goes— A group of children were playing outside a hospital, wherein a medical student was dissecting a human arm. Annoyed by their chattering, the student grabbed the arm, hung out the window, and in a perfect horror movie scene, waved it at the children, telling a specific boy that it was in fact the arm of his own mother, who had died recently. The kids took off in terror, and the boy immediately told his father what the student had said. When his father indeed found his wife's grave empty, he gathered a group of townspeople who shared his outrage and swapped stories about other gruesome and disrespectful experiments happening at the hospital, and eventually 2,000 people would gather and riot, breaking into the building and finding the macabre rumors to be true. They pulled several students out by the arms and forced them into the crowd until the mayor had them taken to jail and the rioters threw rocks at the militias called in for crowd control. Up to 20 people would be killed, and the laws would then be reformed about just who could be exhumed. However, the petitions of the enslaved were largely ignored, and the process of medical testing on exhumed black bodies in some states lasted into the early 20s. 20th century
1: I have been struck by a piece of shell and my right shoulder is horribly mangled. I know death is near, that I will die far from home and friends of my early youth. I pray my God to forgive my sins and feel that his promises are true, that he will forgive and save me.
0: The Civil War would be perhaps the greatest influence on our modern dealings with the dead with the national shock of nearly 700,000 bodies as compared to less than 7,000 in the Revolutionary War. Battlefields were covered with the dead and medics and soldiers were completely unable to keep up with identifying and burying the bodies in an honorable way. In just one day, during the Battle of Antietam, for example, 23,000 men would perish, their bodies lying out in the open for days. During the Battle of Vicksburg, the two sides called for a temporary truce because of the stench of decomposing bodies. They lacked important supplies like carts and shovels, and it's believed that in this particular battle, the dead were almost completely unburied after a week of working, leading to a frustrated acceptance of using mass and unidentified graves. The soldiers of the Civil War wore no dog tags, no identification, and there was no database of those who were fighting, and so families would sometimes have to wander the battlefields themselves, usually to no avail, trying to find the bodies of their loved one, hoping to fill what was called the dread void of uncertainty. At least half of those who died in the war were never identified. By the mid-1800s, life expectancy was rising, and so death was becoming more distant, and those who survived into adulthood were expected to live into middle age. But the Civil War changed the psyche of Americans at large, and was often called the harvest of death. Suddenly, this gathering around for final moments, these whispered last words and goodbyes, the comfort of a heavenly ascent that marked their good death, was no longer an option for those who died on the battlefield and their families. Would they get to heaven or not? What would become of their bodies, and thus, what would become of their souls? The trains that carried fallen soldiers home in the scorching southern heat required heavy iron coffins to avoid the smell of decomposition, which most families couldn't afford. And so scientists and doctors searched for a solution, and they found it in the unorthodox practice called embalming. More after this. box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Check out Factor today. And now, back to the show. Undertaking, before the Civil War, was largely a city affair, focused on building and selling coffins, renting out hearses and funeral carriages, and selling mourning clothes and jewelry— But as the need arose, men took up embalming for cash and followed skirmishes of the Confederate and Union armies, embalming directly on the battlefield and competing fiercely with one another, often burning down each other's tents. Propping up unclaimed bodies they had preserved outside their facilities to mark their prowess, these predecessors of ambulance chasers also advertised their services with phrases like Bodies embalmed by us never turn black. A discount option from the $100 cost was to eviscerate internal organs and fill the body with sawdust, despite this being considered a sin by both the Protestant and Catholic traditions. Beyond the soldiers themselves, it would be the assassination of Abraham Lincoln and his embalmed body's subsequent tour that would bring this new post-mortem sensation into popular consciousness.
1: People in the town would be singing hymns and, and, and chanting prayers, and as that faded away into the distance in the dark, you could then hear the next town, the next village, Uh, of people doing the very same thing.
0: Millions would see and mourn the body of Lincoln as the procession made the long trip from Washington, D.C. to Springfield, Illinois, with the former president preserved by a man known as the father of American embalming, Thomas Holmes. People were amazed to see this man they so revered one more time in person, well, sort of. But the 20-day trip proved too much for the corpse, and the New York Times reported that, quote,
1: Dark as was the face before, and unearthly, it was at 11 o'clock Monday night, nearly five shades darker. The dust had gathered upon the features, the lower jaw somewhat dropped, the lips slightly parted, and the teeth visible. It was not a pleasant sight.
0: Regardless, so much of the country had seen this man that they so loved. And it seemed that death no longer belonged exclusively to families and small communities. It belonged to the people, spread far and wide through newspapers and the new technology of photography, with gruesome photographs of battlefield corpses only reinforcing the desire to make the realities of death, well less real. But there was another history of death occurring as white Americans began to hide the more gruesome aspects of their own deaths, a polar opposite reaction. Most of us know that thousands of black people were lynched from the post-slavery years all the way through the 1960s and even into the present day. After the Civil War gained black folks their relative freedom and a new list of rights previously denied, the lynching of black people became far more widespread, accounting for 73% of the almost 5,000 post-Civil War lynchings, despite only being a fraction of the population. And those white people who were lynched were quite frequently abolitionists who were working with free men and women. Just as it had been used against fugitives from slavery, lynching was a horrifically explicit warning shrouded in punishment for crimes not committed, a way to continue to enforce white supremacy.
1: Over the years, the targets of violence continued to be groups seen by whites as less than human. The practice and ideology of white supremacy branded them not only as less than human, but degraded black and red bodies in order to exploit them economically, to oppress them politically, and to dishonor them culturally.
0: Sam Hose grew up on a farm in Macon County, Georgia, coming of age after the Civil War and after his mom had been freed from enslavement. He could read and write, which was rare for a black man in the South, and he was a man who was remembered by those who actually knew him as friendly and intelligent, a man who cared for both his mother and his brother who was unable to work. After moving to a new county to look for work, he found a boss in Alfred Cranford, a man who was known to withhold pay from his workers. When Cranston was found dead, a massive manhunt began soon after without any attempt to gather evidence or interview witnesses, and Sam Hose was the target. Quickly, rumors became facts, growing more and more sensationalized and lurid each time they were told. Suddenly, Sam had not only murdered the man, but he had sexually assaulted his white wife and also threw their infant son against the wall, or, by other accounts, even sexually assaulted the child. After evading the townspeople and authorities for a number of days, Sam was captured by a mob on April 23, 1899. As trainloads of spectators rushed to arrive at the event, some estimated that as many as 2,000 looked on, as one journalist wrote, quote, with unfeigned satisfaction, as parts of Sam's body were sold as souvenirs. A pyre was built beneath him, and several from the mob tossed matches onto the kindling as they all happily watched him burn to death the tree was cut down and pieces were carried off, links of the chains given out to the crowd. As was often the case with lynchings, both black writer and activist Ida B. Wells and a white detective found that Sam had acted in self-defense after Cranford had placed a gun to his head and that Sam had never touched either Mrs. Cranford or her child, who was found in perfect health. We can further see this polar opposite treatment of America's dead through the advent of photography. Post-mortem photos, known as mourning portraits, showed the white deceased dressed up nicely and propped up as they would have been should they still be living. This was often the only image that the family would ever have to keep, and so they made multiple prints and mailed them out to loved ones all over the nation. At the same time, though, other photographs were spread as popular cheery postcards. Photographs of black people after they had been lynched were mailed out for friendly exchanges with friends and relatives and even swapped like trading cards.
1: Roy Bryant is the operator of this small store. It was here that the Chicago Negro boy... Emmett Till is alleged to have paid unwelcome attention to Roy Bryant's most attractive wife.
0: In 1955, 56 years after the murder of Sam Hose, a 14-year-old black boy named Emmett Till had arrived down from Chicago to visit relatives in a town called Money, Mississippi, a place where just 10 days before Lamar Smith had been shot dead for political organizing in a state where 500 black people had been lynched in the past 60 years. Just four days before his murder, Emmett and some friends from town had skipped church and went to Bryant's grocery store and meat market. There, the boys bought candy from store owner Carolyn Bryant, whose husband was out of town at the time. When he returned, she told him that Emmett had flirted with her and harassed her. Enraged and armed with a pistol, Bryant and his half-brother, J.W. Millam, pushed into the house where Emmett was staying with his uncle and found him sleeping. They forced him at gunpoint into the woods beating and mutilating him before shooting him in the head and then sinking his body in the nearby river where Emmett would be found three days later by local kids fishing. The lasting effects of this brutal moment in U.S. history would come through the actions of Emmett's mother, Mamie Till, who made the choice to have an open casket for her son, his face so badly disfigured as to be unrecognizable. Mamie asked that the photo be published for the nation to bear witness to, and it was printed on the cover of Jet magazine over 50,000 people would attend Emmett's funeral. And that particular photo spread far and wide in other newspapers has been noted by many historians as perhaps the most important spark to the coming civil rights movement. During the subsequent jury selection, both black people and women were barred from participating. It took an all-white, all-male jury less than an hour to come back with a not-guilty verdict. A jury member was quoted as saying, we wouldn't have taken so long if we hadn't stopped to drink pop. The men would later admit their guilt in a paid magazine article under the protection of double jeopardy, But Mamie Till was not through with her work, and in partnership with the NAACP, she went on a national tour to talk about her son's death and raise money for the organization to work towards civil rights. It seemed to be the first time that a Black body had been relatively widely viewed by white America not as something to celebrate or explain away, but as something to deplore and, in the best of cases, something to fight actively against. Here's Mamie Till and James Baldwin.
1: I think it really let us see the ugly monster that uh, race hatred is. It's almost as if it was embodied in, in uh, his appearance, in his physical appearance. In some sense, it was myself in the, in the coffin. It was my brothers in the coffin. It was, I can't describe it precisely. It was him, but it was all of us.
0: Through the horrors of World War II, through the constant terror of the nuclear threat, America would design an entire era purified of death, when even the bomb shelters were sold as pretty little getaways, sold with the newest brands of food to every fashionable housewife in bright green suburbia. The more liberal decades to follow, though, would usher in new ideas about how to deal with life after death, as well as how to avoid the increasingly expensive funeral industry with new options like cremation. But still, like Forest Lawn in classic American style, it can cost a lot to die, and it can cost a lot to try to live forever. There are more and more tech billionaires investing in various bizarre sciences to attempt to live as long as possible, perhaps forever, like Google's co-founder Sergi Brin, co-founder of Oracle Larry Ellison, and Amazon's own Jeff Bezos, to name a few. Some are working toward the preservation of consciousness, our minds uploaded into the cloud, living as a digital being into perpetuity. Some organizations began housing several coffin-sized crypto-preservation canisters kept at 320 degrees below zero for the purpose of preserving the bodies of the dead until scientific advancements make it possible to revive them. Others are working to design tiny robots called nanobots that will monitor and regulate circulatory processes, while others operate as little baby trash compactors to replace intestinal functions. Google's director of engineering believes that by 2045, immortality will be fully achieved. Dr. Jesse Karmazin is talking about transfusions with the young blood from teenagers and he says it just may turn back the hands of time. In the most haunting of examples, billionaire tech investor and friend to Donald Trump, Peter Thiel, is helping fund three U.S. companies that are currently working to transfuse the blood of the young, mostly ages 16 to 24, into their own veins like a vampiric fountain of youth. And there are rumors that some have already started this process but this dream of immortality by the elite is nothing new. In another example, we can look back to the 1930s in an age where the pseudoscience of eugenics and social Darwinism created a new basis for the superiority of whites over all other races and indeed poor whites as well. The elite were attempting to cement the riches and the power that they apparently inherited through their blood. American inventor and aviator Charles Lindbergh believed that the body worked like a machine. And he and Nobel Prize winning Dr. Alexis Carroll worked together to design a profusion pump to keep organs alive after being removed, believing that they could create the science needed to make humans immortal. In 1935, the pump sustained a cat's thyroid gland for 18 days and the New York American ran the headline, quote, one step nearer to immortality. But this immortality had another purpose. Lindbergh was outraged at what he believed to be the decline of Western civilization caused by white people mixing with inferior races who held weak and deviant genes. And his hope for immortality was largely based in the hope to create this immortality for a group of elite whites so that they could rule into perpetuity over lesser beings. This hope for human immortality was directly related to the hope for the immortality of rich white dominion. More after this. And now, back to the show. So now that we have some background on the different ways that Americans have dealt with death, let's try to figure out why. In the early 1980s, three professors of social psychology used a Pulitzer Prize-winning book called The Denial of Death by Ernest Becker for a new area of research that they called the Terror Management Theory. Sheldon Solomon, Jeff Greenberg and Tim Pishkiniski, whose now well-respected ideas were initially rejected and ridiculed by other academics, would spend 30 years conducting more than 500 studies seeking to prove that, quote, unconscious efforts to deny and transcend death are behind much of human activity. Now, this theory is very complicated, so we encourage you to explore more of it on your own, but here is our best attempt to make sense of the parts that apply today. The theory posits that there are two major things this subconscious fear of death makes us do, to seek out a sense of self-worth or esteem and to reinforce cultural values and norms. Mainstream culture, and indeed humans in general, don't want to face death head on, but the knowledge is always there in the back of our minds, and this seems to be where many of our problems become worse. Some examples include children gently questioned about the concept of death were less likely to befriend immigrants. White college students showed a preference for a black study participant to neatly fit their cultural stereotypes of black men after being reminded of their own deaths. And adults favored an unwaveringly self-confident, charismatic leader over candidates who emphasized community building or clear methods of change when they were reminded of death. In one study, the researchers asked two groups of judges to set bail for a sex worker in a hypothetical case. Both groups were asked to fill out a short survey, and one had a few questions regarding their feelings about their own mortality. The group that was asked general questions without reminders of death set bail at $50, the standard for the case presented. But the group that was reminded of death set bail at an average of nine times that amount, revealing a human habit of punishing transgressors of our social norms to a greater extent when we're presented with thoughts of our own mortality. Research also repeatedly showed that Americans reminded of death reacted more positively to those who praise the United States and more negatively to those who criticize it, even going so far as to be willing to cause intentional pain to those who they perceive to threaten cultural norms. In one study, which I consider to be the most unnerving and also the most important, researchers found that reading about the deaths of perceived evildoers actually reduced a subject's own thoughts of their own mortality. This provides the two coping mechanisms of the terror management theory— the self esteem needed to believe that we are better than our outgroup, our perceived evil doers, and then the confidence we gain through reinforcing our own culture, a culture that lives on well after we do, and thus can help us feel immortal. Every culture has its outgroups. In America, our outgroup. Our perceived evildoers, among so many other marginalized populations, have often been black people who were not only considered lesser than, considered of a lower order, which, by the way, reinforces the self-esteem of white people, but have also historically and currently been accused of false crimes in order to render them villains, to make whatever punishment they incur into a necessity to protect American cultural norms. If the terror management theory is indeed sound, then it seems possible that when we punish our outgroups, we feel less afraid of our own deaths, lulled into, as the Puritans put it, a false peace. In 1963, James Baldwin captured the problems with our subconscious, repressed fear of death in The Fire Next Time, as read by actor Jesse L. Martin.
1: Life is tragic simply because the earth turns and the sun inexorably rises and sets. And one day, for each of us, the sun will go down for the last, last time. Perhaps the whole root of our trouble... The human trouble is that we will sacrifice all the beauty of our lives, will imprison ourselves in totems, taboos, crosses, blood sacrifices, steeples, mosques, races, armies, flags, nations, in order to deny the fact of death, which is the only fact we have. It seems to me that one ought to rejoice in the fact of death ought to decide indeed to earn one's death by confronting with passion the conundrum of life. One is responsible to life. It is the small beacon in that terrifying darkness from which we come and to which we shall return.
0: In this spring of 2020, America is again dealing with a reckoning of death not only those of the present, but also those of the past, the death of white America's historical others. Less than five hours away from where Sam Hose was lynched, Ahmaud Arbery was falsely accused by two white men of robbery and killed while he was jogging by shotgun after being pursued by the father and son vigilantes. Millions of Americans saw this video, again saw the death of another innocent black person killed by white people making false accusations. And then came George Floyd, also seen dying on camera, uploaded for the entire nation, the entire world, to see in a monumental video whose lasting effect may not be unlike that photograph of Emmett Till 65 years ago. George Floyd has become enormously more than himself, and his death has changed America's future irrevocably. But the funerals, the homegoings of Black people, have so often carried the burden of the political. It was at funerals where the enslaved were able to meet in private, so that's where they organized revolts and other work toward freedom. Maybe one day, mainstream America won't need death to spark these vital movements to shock us into the truth. I was with my beloved grandpa at the very end of his life, a man who made me want to understand the world enough to stay in love with it, to be as kind and unafraid as he was. He was so unconcerned with dying that he once casually told me, just burn me up and put me in the roses. When that time actually came, I saw death. I really saw it. For the very first time, I said goodbye to a person who had loved me, who I had loved my entire life. I was lucky enough to put old pictures of our family in his pockets, to touch his wonderful face, to say goodbye before the young undertaker carried him away. Before his death, I had started growing a rose Because he grew roses, and I wanted to be like him. And two, I wanted to make beautiful things lined with sharp moments that sometimes hurt. That first year, I had not learned the proper care for a rose, and I thought that I'd killed it over the winter without caring for it enough. My grandpa died a month later, and I sprinkled his ashes over the dark soil, dreaming, you know, that its heavy flowers would come back again. They did come back, and I wanted so badly for that to mean something, that somehow the harsh truth of beauty wants to reach us, to tell us something. But what? Poet Frank Stanford said, All of this is magic against death. At the close of this season, we are in the middle of an uprising, unlike anything the nation has seen since the civil rights movement. One is responsible for life, James Baldwin wrote, urging us all to earn our death by confronting with passion the conundrum of life to confront the conundrum of American life before it becomes the conundrum of death. The deeply personal losses that sparked this new movement, this grief, don't belong to me. But what does belong to me, to each of us, is the responsibility to decide what will come from them. America once believed in the good death that the way a person died signified both how they have lived and where they were going. Perhaps now, 400 years later, these deaths instead show how we have lived, how America has lived for these long and grief-soaked centuries. What remains to be seen, what we cannot yet know with any assurance of salvation— What we cannot face with false peace is what will happen, is where we are going next. Thank you so much for listening and for sticking with us through everything that's been happening this year. Our team is so honored and humbled by your trust in us. Like I mentioned at the top of the episode, we're taking the summer off to find a network so we can keep making this show for you. Please stay subscribed and stay tuned. Help spread the word about American hysteria, leave us reviews, follow us on social media, or become a patron for extra content through the next few months. We could not love this community more. If you'd like to learn more about some of the books we've used for this episode and others, you can follow the hashtag on Instagram, hashtag Book Club, or just come and follow us in general. American Hysteria is written, produced, and hosted by me, Chelsea Weber-Smith. Sound design by the brilliant Rod Rodriguez. Co-research and writing by the brilliant Riley Smith co-production by the brilliant Miranda Zickler, voice acting by the brilliant Will Rogers. Thanks, as always, for listening. And my hope for all of us is that we find strength, courage, and care in what we each have lost, and that it will lead us into something new. Have a brave and beautiful summer.